and welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and I had one of those moments where I saw a cellist at my home train station that I didn't know. Oh my god! She looked like your typical gigging musician, dressed in black, cello on her back, cabin-sized suitcase probably full of gig music pads, an expression of weariness on her face. (laughs) like looking in a mirror. No, but she reminded me of myself so much and I wanted very much to talk to her and introduce myself, but I didn't have my cello this time. So I felt like I couldn't. But then I felt even more awkward because I proceeded to stare at her for an uncomfortably long amount of time, just thinking, who are you? Should I know you? We probably know all the same people. And remember, to her, there is no indication at all that I am a cellist. To her, I'm just some crazy lady who is staring at her for no good reason. It's easier when you do have your instrument with you, and when you run into another of your kind, say, on the tube, you exchange the little head nod and a smile or a <laughs> of solidarity as you experience the same carnage of being out in public with your cello simultaneously. But when you don't have your instrument, you run the risk of looking a bit creepy. Or being too much, because, God forbid, how dare you strike up conversation with a stranger on London public transport? My sister was in town last week for a work trip, all the way from Auckland. She's not a musician, but she told me that she smiles at cellists now when she sees them. I feel like I'm once removed. And that's nice, isn't it? If you're a cellist and you're on the receiving end of a nice warm smile, that's much more preferable to the open-mouthed gawp. So I'm going to encourage that. A brief smile, then move on. Do not maintain eye contact for too long, or else you'll look weird. So, today's guest is Nina Harries. She's a double bass player and vocalist. She does both at the same time. A multitasker of the highest degree who has this down to a fine art. She's played with several bands, the Akram Khan Dance Company, and she's got an album of her own original material coming up. We chat about having a musical family, imposter syndrome, insight into band life, how you tour with a double bass, and of course, her new album. I was so thankful to chat to Nina. She drove one and a half hours to my flat in South London to come and have our conversation. What a champ. In true British style, we chat over cups of tea. So have a listen to my chat with Nina. Have a sip of your Lady Grey tea. It's nice, isn't it? I haven't had this one in ages. I don't think I've ever had a Lady Grey tea. It's all grey, but it's got those citrus, like an orange vibe. Less bergam, bergamot, Mm. or whatever. Or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That's the characteristic of Earl Grey, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I'm never sure whether it's bergamot or bergamot. (laughs) Yeah, I've never known that. We should. I don't even know where that word comes from. The silent T, like yeah. at the end of Merlot. <laughs> That's what I imagine. Bergamot. Bergamot doesn't sound very sensuous, does it? Mm, Berger M O T. Nina, welcome to the podcast. Hi. <laughs> Do you want to start off by telling us what you've been up to over the summer? This summer's been a bit of a a different one for me. Usually. In the past, I would be doing a horrendously long festival season, but this year I tried to to not do that to give myself a bit of free time. So I think we only did 
three festivals in the end. We did Glastonbury, two independent festivals, one in Oxfordshire called Rollwright Fair and one in Somerset called Fanny's Meadow. Best festival ever. Other than that, I've just been trying to knuckle down and prepare for the upcoming months of work. Yeah, the impending doom. I love how you just said, oh, we just did three festivals and the first one you name is one of the biggest festivals in oh, the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, just a little festival you might have heard of. Oh, this, well, this yeah, it's uh, it's an experience, <laughs> Glastonbury. This year I did it a bit differently. I decided that I wasn't going to do it as a musician. I was going to do it working. So I ended up uh, working with a friend of mine who runs a lot of the bars in Glastonbury and we were doing like a backstage bar called Pinkies. Do you generally enjoy festivals? No, not really. <laughs> I mean, there are amazing moments in festivals like the sun rises when you catch them and some of the gigs can be amazing. But in general, as a double bass player, oh festivals are quite harrowing, especially the big ones, because you end up just carrying your instrument from field to field. And I didn't have to do that this year, but Glastonbury a couple of years ago, we ended up having about, I think we had nine gigs in three days. And I had to carry the bass from opposite sides of the festival two or three times a day. And that was just, it was just horrible. And probably <laughs> through the mud, right? Oh yeah, because that year was three years ago, I think. And the mud was like record levels. So was that 2016? I thought it might have been. That yeah. was the year I was there. It was very muddy. Yeah, I'm it was horrendous. So thankful for wellies, actually. I was performing as part of a group that had to wear all white. Oh God, that's just asking for it, isn't it? Why would you? Why would you do that to people at a festival? Like, I mean, it was a miracle that I didn't get soiled in any way. <laughs> <laughs> it is impractical for that sort of an environment. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I think festivals, amazing places, but there is a lot of other baggage that goes along. Oh with yeah, it. literally. <laughs> it's like when Glastonbury finishes and you can basically see trails of mud from Somerset all the way to Victoria yeah. Station, <laughs> all the way up the A three O three, muddy footprints. <laughs> Yeah, totally. A little introduction for listeners who may not know you. You're a double bass player and a vocalist, writing your own original material that explores the relationship between the double bass and the female voice. That's the one. How would you sum that up? It's always changing all the time because originally I was doing it more in a, a solo context. I still do that, but now it's, it's starting to change, starting to grow a bit. So before when I was writing the original music it was very much to do with that relationship between those two sound worlds and the way that when you play and sing simultaneously the different pathways that kind of open up in your brain but it's definitely changing now because I've started working with a band and rearranging the music that I wrote originally for a soloist well all the roles have changed now the bass actually becomes a bass instrument again Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which is quite a, <laughs> it's quite a minefield for me. I have to rethink how to play my instrument again. So we'll get into a little bit about your, your solo album in a bit. But first of all, I wanted to ask you, how did you get into this path of playing and singing? You've got a really musical family. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you started exploring this? I always wanted to perform solo in some context. And the idea of a classical soloist didn't really exist to me at this point, because we're talking like before I went to the RCM. So when I was still in my hometown, I started getting into bands and the idea of singer-songwriters and this sort of thing. This was just as I was starting to play the double bass, but I wasn't, I was terrible. So that wasn't, didn't seem an option to me at the time. So what I tried to do was uh, learn guitar. And I'd always sung since I was little, because my mum, my mum's a singer as well. And I grew up doing choirs and I was always a part of 
as much singing background as I could do like church choirs and non-secular choirs and all sorts of stuff I got really into like uh, Lou Reed and Bob Dylan and that sort of you know the man with the guitar so I thought I'll give it a go and I did a gig on guitar and I think I did mostly Bob Dylan covers actually in uh, the Labour Club back in Northampton oh. which that was my first hang I quickly realized that a I didn't have any real ability on the guitar and b I'm quite a contrary person I don't like to do things that are too obvious or done too much I like getting away from people's expectations uh-huh. and I realized very quickly that the kind of trope of the singer with the guitar is just everywhere you look that exists So you became the lady with the double bass. Yeah, well, I kind of, I thought to myself, how can I change this? How can I change this trope to fit me to be something a bit more rare, I guess, and do something different? And at this point, I was starting to, well, I thought I was starting to get a hang of how to play the double bass, kind of nearly almost. I thought, hey, you know what? I've never seen anyone play double bass and sing before. But I, as you said about my family, I grew up watching my dad play double bass. So that was always something that I wanted to try. And then it just kind of started working very slowly. I think I wrote one song, won the double bass, and people seemed to respond to it. Back then, I can't imagine what it must have sounded like because, I mean, wow. Well, I think that's the funny thing is sometimes we get surprised when you get a positive response out of some kind of creative output. But I think the fact that you've done something in the first place is impressive, you know, compared to all those people who are sitting there being like, oh, wow, this is a new thing. It's like, well, they haven't done anything. (laughs) Yeah, I think definitely just seeing something that they've not seen before. And the double bass has that ability to to surprise people without even playing it, just the look of it, the sight of it. Yeah, people can't Ah. believe that it's a thing. (laughs) And I mean, honestly, neither can I. So I think seeing it on its own on a stage, it's something that grabs people's attention before you've even started playing. And if not that, it's just, of course, people are going to be impressed that you've come all this way with this massive double bass <laughs> on stage and you've gone up all these stairs and navigated through the, <laughs> the muddy fields of Glastonbury. I'm really interested in musical families, actually, because I don't really come from a musical family. I come from a family of music appreciators. What was it like for you living in that environment where, as you mentioned, your dad plays a double bass and your siblings? Yeah, both musical. musical. Was there a lot of collaboration during your childhood or did you feel free to pursue your own ideas? I always get people ask me that, like, oh, so you must have done the family band thing. But um, for most of my life, no, we never did that because everyone's kind of from different musical not musical backgrounds because we're obviously all the same family but we all do music in very different ways my sister originally was a classical bassoonist playing in orchestras and um my brother is completely self-taught guitar drums singer and approaches music in a completely different way to my sister and I because we're classically trained and then my dad is an incredibly versatile musician again plays for all sorts of different acts classical and non-classical my mum is into music education so she again She's coming at music from a very different angle. But we never did the the family band thing (laughs) until, I think it was 2017, my sister got married and she asked my dad, my brother and I to be the band. I think my dad and my brother had played together a few times with uh, the Hofeschekter Dance Company. So they'd worked together, but never as like a family thing. They were both just on the same show. Mm. But then my sister said, yeah, I'd love you guys to, to be the band. And here's the list of songs that we want played. And we had some rehearsals in our house. And I think that was the first time the three of us played together. (laughs) We're going to do it again for my stuff. 
That's so, really cool. And I imagine, as you said, you all do music in different ways and the more you do collaborate with each other, the more it sort of informs each other's. Yeah, way. definitely. Knowing how each other's brains work. Mm, and I think that's that, the whole thing. That can be really useful sometimes because I'm classically trained and I'll be in a position where I'm working with someone who's not classically mm. trained and you have to translate things a little bit in your head. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Moving on, you went on to study at the Royal College of Music. Yeah, as you mentioned. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Kind of. So you ended up there. There's a quote on your website, which struck a chord with me, where you state, you felt a bit below standard there. And I think a lot of students have this fixed idea of what they want to or feel they should achieve at college, which works for some, but obviously not for everybody. And it can be really detrimental to the health of many students just to have mm. this kind of preconceived notion of what we must do at music college. So what made you pursue your own path, going to a very conventional you know, music conservatoire environment, and what made you stray away from the Western classical way of playing? It was a huge journey, those four years. My brother keeps insisting that the next record we do has to be called Four Years, because <laughs> he believes that those are four years that I wasted. But that's just him. <laughs> I don't think that I, I think some of it was useful. From arriving, I immediately felt a sense of, my mum calls it imposter syndrome. Oh, sure. Totally. Mostly because I think when I first arrived, everybody knew each other. And that shocked me really? because I was expecting everyone to be in the same boat as me, to be quite scared, to be quite lonely, to be quite... Ugh. But then I discovered about this thing, the fact that there are music schools, not rather than conservatoires. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. I didn't know about that. So someone came up to me, I remember like the first day, and they were like, so did you go to Purcell? Oh. My first thought, which I said very embarrassingly, was how do you go to Purcell? Because I always just thought that was a composer. <laughs> And I think I pretty much outed myself from that moment as a bit of an imposter. Go to Purcell, do not pass go. Yeah, do like how, how do you go? How do you go to Purcell? Like, do not do you collect £200. <laughs> yeah, definitely do not collect £200. <laughs> give, please give £60,000. From the first moment, I felt quite out of place. And yeah. the music that I had done in Northampton, I played with the Northamptonshire County Youth Orchestra. I was principal there. I was the, the, the good one. I was good, I thought. So I think going from that to the real classical thing, I felt like, oh God, I don't know anything about yeah. this stuff, you know, and everyone seems to know a lot already. And I'm yeah. kind of not self-taught. I had a lot of lessons with an amazing bass teacher, Peter Smith in Northampton, but I was still very much a kind of ear musician. That's how my mum refers to it. A what musician? An ear musician. This is a theory that we have. There's two types of musician. There's the ear musician and the eye musician. So ear musician is a, oh, ear. a natural. Yeah, so, ear. Yeah. What were you thinking? What did you think I was saying? I, I don't ear. know. A ear. As in like the organ with which you listen. Yeah, that's the one. There's okay. two ones on the side of your head. <laughs> I get it now. Yeah, that musician. idea, yeah, that idea of the musician that kind of functions very much from how they hear things. So they don't necessarily have like a detailed academic understanding of music, mm -hmm. but you find that they don't need it. Yeah. Because their ears are so developed that the ability to read music or even the ability to kind of name the notes in a chord, they don't need that because they'll play it without even thinking. Yeah. Whereas then there's the other side where people very much study it in an academic sense. And I thought I was an academic until I came to the college and then I realized that I was very much I was essentially a pop musician there <laughs> there was some classical music that I liked to listen to but it wasn't a habitual thing for me it was always very much like rock music old rock as well like the Velvet Underground Lou Reed who I said before 
David Bowie, that kind of background. So I was as soon as I arrived, I was like, oh, do you like David Bowie? And they just look at you like, who's that? Who's that? And they're like, oh, Christ, <laughs> I'm definitely in the wrong place. I, I try not to sound like I'm being uh, disparaging about classical musicians because there's something about them that I respect so much and I envy so much, which is their undying dedication to the art of self-improvement. Yeah, That is something that I never experienced before. I mean, I, my teacher back in Northampton would be like, can you just practice? And I'd be like, yeah, cool. I'd do like half an hour a week. <laughs> it never really crossed my mind. And then you come into college and it's everything is about practice it's just like every day the only conversation that you hear from people is like oh I've done this many hours of practice today and I'm going to do this many hours again tonight it blew my mind because I still even today playing the double bass is incredibly physical and if I play for half an hour I need to lie down afterwards because it's just so tiring and these people played for hours every day and it was all in view of this improving their technique and getting better and learning the repertoire and just improving 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 and that's an incredible attitude and I I appreciated it so much and I'll never be like that I had to accept it kind of early on that I don't have that whatever that is like I want to improve and I'll do the work I'll do work when I feel like I need to but I don't have that same drive Mm -hmm. and upon kind of seeing it every day and realizing that I didn't really have that vibe that was quite hard. That made me feel like I didn't really deserve to be there because I didn't work as hard as the others. Now I see that I was kind of working in a different way. I started, I was actually working for one. I was going and doing gigs almost every, well, every weekend, sometimes all week, every week, just to earn some money and to meet other musicians. And it was all kind of funk. I did some function stuff. I started doing solo gigs in my second year. I started playing with a few bands, one of which I met the drummer at the Royal College and she asked me to join their band, The Burning Glass. Check them out, best band ever. Uh, Sorry. It was kind of hard to realize that I didn't have their drive and that made me feel even more like it didn't really deserve to be there. It's sort of, as I mentioned before, detrimental to musicians' health on both sides, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of on your side thinking, oh, I, I... shouldn't be here but then also those people who are so focused on as you say focusing on yeah and they don't do anything else thing. yeah and you it, ask them like do you want to go to this gig and they're like oh, i can't i've got to practice. Got practice and there's this like you see it in their eyes it's like this kind of panic yeah fear panic and i it's i think it very much depends on people's situation like some people maybe they have quite pushy families i think mm-hmm. some people have very pushy teachers which can work but can also be really damaging to someone's self-esteem I've been incredibly lucky I think the only reason I stayed at college was I got from my second year I got the most amazing teacher I could have imagined who didn't see me as a layabout Mm -hmm. he thought I was worth something he knew I shouldn't really have been there but he appreciated that I was trying to be there so and that you could pursue your own path I think ultimately you want that in a teacher someone who will let you bloom definitely and even if it's not the direction that they themselves specialize in because obviously when you're at college you're very much focused on um, classical repertoire and with the intention to end up in an orchestra that's either a soloist or an orchestral player isn't it really those are the two the two jobs and um, I think my teacher very early on and myself realized that that wasn't ever going to be a thing for me, mostly because I probably didn't have the right skill, but also I was too interested in the other things, the other sides of music that I could see kind of in my peripheral and that I knew like they were going, they were doing it in like the underground scene that didn't exist at the college. And I was just like, there's, there's something else that I think I should probably go and do that. <laughs> and he encouraged me to do that. He even came to my first gig, I remember. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. 
How did you find your way through those four years? Oh, I, tough. I nearly left loads of times. I think I, almost every week I probably called my mum and was like, I don't need <laughs> But yeah, I think to be honest, my teacher and I had a huge, huge impact on me. And he is the reason I stayed because I remember I didn't do particularly well in the recital aspect because A, I didn't practice enough and B, I got horrific nerves. Mm -hmm. None of the repertoire really suited me because I knew I was kind of meant to be doing, I couldn't make that classical stuff sound good, you know, and I could hear the, the, the other people around me doing it and I was like, wow, no, I know I don't sound like that. Yeah. But Eno encouraged me to try contemporary music, which just changed everything for me because I realized I could do it. It was amazing. Like I can't play these classical concertos but put a piece of like 20th century music in front of me and I'm like, oh, I can yeah. do that. Like no matter how ridiculous those rhythms yeah. are that they do in the weird, weird extended scores. techniques, I love that. It well, works for me. So. I think that's what I find quite freeing about modern music and contemporary mm. music is that you have the opportunity to make it your own. Definitely. There's, there are none of these preconceived notions of this is what it should sound like authentically. Yeah, you know, oh which God. a yeah. lot of people get really hung up about. But if it's a new piece... And if you're the first person playing it, then you can sort of... No one will know. Yeah, you just yeah, do whatever you, you like. Yeah, you do whatever you want. Yeah. Sometimes um, yeah. the composer won't even That's know. That's the future, really. <laughs> and I knew, as soon as I started doing contemporary music, I realised, I was like, okay, so in the classical world, there may only be one part where I could work, mm -hmm. and it will be in contemporary music, like my teacher, he played the London Sinfonietta. I started doing, I think it was my third year, I started doing the module where you can choose to work with with the composers who are studying at the college too. Yeah, I, can, I think they call it contemporary music in action or something cool like that. Yeah, CMIA <laughs> and YMCA. And I agreed to take on, to take, because it was taking on, to take on three composers because you're only supposed to do one. But I was right. like, this is the future because people can write me pieces mm -hmm that will fit me, yep. that I can actually do. And, and I asked them all to do it for double bass and voice. You can have that active role in collaboration. Yeah, and yeah. you can actually show them what you believe your instrument can do rather than them kind of being in a room on their own and being like, I don't Making actually play the double bass. Or like consulting some orchestration book and being yeah, like, oh, God. I don't really know how that works. Or you're on Sibelius and you get this score and it's got like <laughs> nine ledger lines below the stave and you're like, the double bass only has one ledger line <laughs> below the stave and that's the open bottom string. So like there's nothing under there. Like I can't do any of these. Yeah, like, I think when those notes start turning red on the computer. Oh God, that's the away. message. Stay people <laughs> when it goes red on Sibelius stop yeah, and yeah, call your local double bass player and ask them how many notes they can actually play <laughs> it's always better to talk to a person right definitely yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. red alert red alert yeah like literally actually so since leaving college woohoo you made it out the other end the four wow. years your music has led you all around the world mm. and all around the place can you tell us a little bit more about what you've been up to since you left college? When I first left college, I was playing for about four or five bands at the same time. So I don't know how I managed it because I think any musician listening now can agree that like basically the first job you ever do is teaching. Mm -hmm. But I was always kind of really scared of teaching because I know I have very bad habits and I don't want to give them to <laughs> another person. Like the double bass and I have a whole journey to complete before I can tell anyone else how to play it. I like, feel very responsible. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just like trying to hold the string down. You I'm, know. Sure you, I'm sure you, you know a lot more than... <laughs> more than I did then, definitely. But yeah, so I, I shunned te the concept of teaching completely. And um, I was playing for about four or five bands, like I said. This is when we used to do the festivals. So I'd do 25 festivals in a row, you know. Oh I'd just be in my van constantly okay. driving, doing three sets with one band or two sets with 
two bands. So or, the three that you mentioned at the beginning, you're like only three. Yeah, but now was, it makes sense. Because, that was compared to 25. Yeah, that was the worst year, I think, was the 25 in a row. That was with five acts and playing solo as well. That was how I made a living, essentially, yeah. the festival season. And it's the same for a lot of bands working today the festival season is is really your chance to if not make money because obviously they're not always that well paid but mm. to reach new audiences to extend your fan base or whatever <laughs> i was doing a lot of festivals and then my whole life changed my brother got an email from a composer that he worked with with uh, the hoffe Schechter company i mentioned earlier a dance company the composer who used to work for the Schechter company messaged my brother just offhand one day being like i'm trying to put together a, an ensemble for a, sh- a new dance piece and um i need a double bassist who does indian music or who has some kind of knowledge of indian music and my brother was like oh god i don't i'm a guitarist i don't know i don't know what you want but my sister really likes Indian music and I did I've always like my mum brought me up listening to Ravi Shankar like every day so I've always had a bit of a I wouldn't call it an obsession because I don't know enough about it to be obsessed with it but But imagine if you are an an ear musician as you as you said and Mm. you've been listening to it your entire life you've probably absorbed a lot of that I'd like to think so I mean the more I do it the less I realize I know and my brother just said to this guy he was like yeah well my sister's very interested and she's just come out of college so I can send you a video yeah. of hers and the guy of Vincenzo La Magna he was like yeah okay send me a video my brother sent him uh, two videos I think just of songs of mine from YouTube and uh, the next day I get a phone call from this guy Vince and um, he, he wants me to meet me to talk about a show with a dancer called Akram Khan mm-hmm. and at the time I didn't know any of these names you know I vaguely recon- um, recognized Vince because I, I'd seen the show Hoff Hoffa Schechter did that they worked on but I'd never I didn't know about the the glorious Akram Khan our glorious leader I went to meet Vince and we had a talk about very vague ideas that he had for what this show was going to be but he wanted a very small ensemble and he was very interested in the fact that I could play and sing because I was basically two birds with one stone he gave me a very small background of, of Akram, but I didn't really understand what it was that I was getting myself into. And then I had a phone call from the Akram Khan and I went to meet him at the Sadler's Wells Cafe, which I was, I was quaking in my boots, you know, because I knew this was going to be my first job, like yeah. the real job. And I had no idea what to expect. And then, um, so I met with Akram and we talked a little bit more about the show and um, I just had the job which is a thing that the classical schools, <laughs> they really groom you for this thing called the audition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which fair dues because most orchestras operate on an audition process, you know, and you have to learn this repertoire and then you have to go into the scary room with the scary men behind the scary table and you have to play this concerto that you'll never play live <laughs> and lots of scary excerpts that you will play live, so don't get complacent. So you're really waiting for that. You're waiting for the audition. And I was waiting for the audition for this thing, you know, and it never came. I just suddenly I'd done a YouTube audition without knowing it. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, did you feel like, oh, here's my imposter syndrome again? (laughs) Yeah, well, I was really scared because I had no idea. I mean, I'd seen my brother and my dad doing dance shows before, but this one was so different. Immediately I could tell because Akram, he comes from a London Bangladeshi background so he does a form of classical Indian dance called Kathak which is like they wear bells and it's all about the rhythm they basically perform the Indian rhythms or the tals but with their feet yeah. and the drum and the the rhythm of it comes from the bells and their feet movements it's an incredible dance form that I'd never heard of before and I since 
as soon as I had my meeting with Akram, I went home and watched 100 videos of it and I realized, wow, this is really serious. This, like, this, is, this is a proper thing and I'm about to get involved in this and I have no idea. About, don't screw up, don't screw yeah, up, don't screw up. Yeah. I was really scared. They started planning what it was going to be like and the show was, it was going to be set in the First World War because it was sponsored by this charity, 14 to 18 now. So it's a like a remembrance of the First World War and it's the story of a Bangladeshi soldier in the trenches of the First World War. The story was starting to come together and it's all about the isolation, fighting for someone else's war, you know, because we don't know about this. In the First World War, though, I think it was 1.4 million soldiers from India and Bangladesh were basically shipped over to the Allied Front because obviously India was under British yes. colonial rule at that point. So they had no say. They were essentially slave well, shipped out to fight a war that they had no idea they were British was subjects. even happening yeah so yeah. they had no say in what they were doing and they were just to fight for their for the crown for their masters you yeah. know which is horrific to think about now but that was happening and it wasn't even that long ago mm. and um so this show is all about a soldier being ripped out of his homeland and put into someone else's homeland fighting for someone else's homeland and I think for me the idea of being a British person and being invited to take part in that show i can't even speak about it. it's the biggest honor i'll yeah. probably ever have and since then yeah we've toured it feels like everywhere i know there are loads of other countries that we it haven't look, been yet it looks like everywhere i think from what i've seen on social media it definitely you feels like, like everywhere. somewhere different every day <laughs> yeah basically like and i try not to think about my carbon footprint at all because <laughs> i can't afford to offset it yeah i will do when i make some more money somehow one day i'm gonna offset the whole thing but right now yeah I'm that's gonna make it fun uh, cutting cutting around your base offsetting your carbon footprint i have to ask the obvious question here how do you deal with touring with a base as soon as i had, it appeared that i had the job and um, they sent us the schedule for the touring. I went to my dad, who's been touring for 30 years. And I just said to him, I was like, what do I do? <laughs> because we don't have a flight case. We don't yeah. own one. Do I have to rent one? It's going to be like thousands of pounds. I don't think the company are going to want to shell that out every time we fly. And he was like, there's something that you should know. It's, it's, it's not a kind of researched thing, but it's something that people have kind of put together. It's apparently it's a one in three flights an instrument is destroyed. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah, I know. So if you're listening, people, and oh, if you've God. managed to not fall into that, well done. Yeah, but it wood, will happen it. next time. <laughs> Don't get too complacent. But we're talking about if you put your instruments in the hold. Yeah. I mean, obviously. Not just in the hold, I'm afraid, because um, air pressure in the cabin changing can really affect especially string instruments yeah sure not sure about wind and brass i've never really understood how any of that works and then also i guess with being on trucks as well yeah because that's the other option we have two sets and they basically travel alternate locations so that we always have the set arriving coming by a lorry yeah. and um our percussionist manjanath he keeps his mardangam drums he has two sets of drums and one of them travels in the lorry and he has had several things of getting them out of the lorry and the skin smashed or the wood tripled in size or so oh no. traveling with an instrument it's a minefield it's a real minefield yeah. and with the double bass i did it once i went to greece to do a wedding randomly with a couple of friends of mine and um we hired a flight case and we ended up taking an electric double bass in a flight case for a regular double bass which is a okay. really stupid so, thing uh, i'm just having an image of like this skinny little <laughs> yeah, thing like rattling around the in the coffin. Rattling yeah, around. Yeah. but the reason is because it's, it's made by yamaha and if, yamaha if you're listening please make an affordable flight case for your electric <laughs> double basses because we can't 
fly them in those soft cases that you provide and I know that you make one technically but it costs about six grand so please like, <laughs> if you're listening you can send me a free one or get some competitors to make yeah to, if you're to if, yeah, healthy competition. if you're not Yamaha and you're listening please make an affordable <laughs> flight case for your a business EVs. opportunity right here <laughs> definitely we did that and I remember arriving at the airport with this huge white flight case and the air attendant guy was like you can't you just can't you can't put that in that you can't you can't take a fridge on a plane <laughs> A fridge. Because it's a big white carbon fiber thing. And to be yeah, fair yeah. to him, it does look a little bit like a fridge. And I just, <laughs> that has stuck with me ever since that happened. So when I started talking to the the AKC, the Akram Khan company about the logistics of flying, I said, look, I don't want to take my instrument anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So let's just rent. Because that's what okay, people do. Sure. So we rent in every location that mm-hmm. we go to. And it's been a harrowing journey. So does that mean you get to play a different instrument every time? Yep. Every location we do, you're I play always, a different bass. You're always getting used to a new instrument. It's like being mm-hmm. a pianist, isn't it? It is. And I finally, I used to be quite disparaging about pianists and be like, oh, well, it's all the same, isn't it? All the keys are the same. But I now <laughs> understand that. Every instrument is Every totally instrument different. is a completely different instrument, especially with big ones, because there's a lot of. Um, I'm sure if there are any bassists listening, you know about this. Even the slightest change in a shape or a distance between one and two notes, mm-hmm. it throws off your whole understanding of how the instrument works and your yeah. fingerings and the way that your arms move. And it's a bigger margin for error. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. So I barely, and usually I get the double bass about two hours before we do our sound check. So I usually have about two hours to learn to how to play you. a double bass completely perfectly every time, oh which doesn't God. happen. So you mentioned earlier you and your family are performing together as part of your solo album coming out very soon. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It's taken me a long time to get around to recording something. It's obviously something you you kind of have to do as a... As a songwriter or a band. What, write songs? Yeah, you got to write songs. you got to do it. There's no way around it. Otherwise, it gets awkward after Damn a while. It. <laughs> it took me years to kind of get the right idea of making an album because it's quite, it's a huge thing. I didn't really realize at the time, like before I did it, but it's a huge journey and it's a big learning curve, especially if you've never done it. I've done a lot of recording before, but it's always for other people mm. or classical stuff. So it's a completely different ball game when it's your own thing. You're so emotionally involved and it's so much work. But it's happened. I did it. <laughs> well, technically, I actually did it two years ago. But um, I then got the job with Akram, so I, I buggered off around the world for a year and a half. So th- that kind of put a bit of a, a, bit of a delay. Put, put it on, on the back the burner for a bit. Yeah. So how do you deal with um, working creatively? Because this is something I find in, with my own creative work is you, you have this goal, you have this idea that you're going to put something out there. And then it comes to it and you think, uh, my brain is empty. Oh, God, You know, yeah. like trying to write something. Um, for me, it's not necessarily music, more words, say. How do you deal with looking for inspiration? I have to say I would never have been able to do this record if it wasn't for my brother. The whole record is performed by him and I on several different instruments. And uh, he was an, an amazing inspiration to me. He's a very prolific artist. He's written quite a few of his own albums. He's an amazing songwriter and he work, He does library music too. He's really, I don't know, mastered the art of 
it's not he he says it's not being prolific it's just doing the work mm. because there's a thing about being creative that there's no one there like tapping you on the shoulder going this has to be in by tuesday you know like so we kind of get oh, so delayed in our mind well actually yeah that's true <laughs> sometimes there is especially if you do library music <laughs> yeah but he was a great inspiration to me as to how to approach songwriting how to record things so that they work on a record because i have a very kind of free improvisatory aspect to my performance especially solo where every song every time I do it will be different sometimes they're almost unrecognizable and I think definitely learning more about Indian music has definitely made that even more so because improvisation is so important in Indian music and I've really picked that up from working with the AKC so my songs have got even more kind of they drift away and they drift out and you don't recognize them the next time you hear them and my brother was very useful and very kind of pragmatic in that sense that he was like no you know you have to set them down and they have to work in a structure that people can hear that you know it's pop music after all when I say pop music it's that's basically anything that's not classical classical yeah rather than it actually being like pop music so he sort of laid down some boundaries yeah definitely and he showed me how it's not necessarily making something less creative by giving it boundaries it's just giving yourself a chance because if you have too many choices I get awful uh, multi-option anxiety. Mm-hmm. So if I have too many choices or too many ideas, I can't do anything. I just sit yeah. on the sofa and cry. That, I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> We're just being overwhelmed by all the, the different options. Definitely. Working within those parameters so that you can be creative, but at least you've given yourself a little bit of a brief. Limits. You need yeah. some limits. Otherwise, there's so many things that you could do that you end up doing nothing. So my brother was a really important part of putting in those limits and Mm -hmm. giving things real structure and organizing how a song should go you know because there are like lots of templates but you can't just be completely free and wild which is Mm -hmm. how I was imagining it you know because it just won't make sense to a listener yeah yeah there is a lot more structure that goes on in pop music than I think a lot of classical musicians realize definitely Um, yeah like the times I've performed with pop musicians and I just think Wow, they know everything off by heart. Yeah. And it's because they, the they've music. got it all in their brain. They're not reading dots like yeah. I am. And and that's due to the structure, the sort of boundaries that they Yeah, definitely. And there themselves. are almost as many I would imagine that there are almost as many rules in pop music for structure and order of things than there are in classical music. But we get this thing when we go to college that we kind of get this weird disrespect (laughs) almost for pop music I learned about my circle of fits why didn't you (laughs) yeah exactly and then you realize that actually you had to learn it by reading it whereas these guys just hear it and go yeah "Yeah, that's a circle of they don't even need to call it the circle of fits because they're like that's just music isn't it that's just the thing that I know and then you realize you're like oh wow we've been looking down on you but you should be looking down on us man well we can learn from each other (laughs) yeah definitely So the album is coming out. You've got an album launch on the 13th of September. Yeah. So that is in the future. I know people will probably be listening to this in, in December. The future. Yeah, in December. You Hi. missed it. Hi, future people. But for those people who are really, really keen, they can check out your album. Where can they find details about that? Yeah, the album will be available to purchase digitally from Bandcamp. But you can also, on the same site, you can order it CD or vinyl format. Vinyl. Or if you know me personally, you can send me a nice message because I think, I, I know not, not everyone's on Bandcamp, so. Right. But yeah, you can also find the details of it on my website, which is just ninaharrys.com. We'll post details about that. What's the name of the album? It's just called Nina Harrys because I couldn't <laughs> think of anything to call it. Because I, when you give an album a name, it's usually one of the songs oh, on sure. the album. Yep. And I didn't want any of the songs on the album to get like extra 
important yeah like the single yeah exactly that's and i haven't done any single releases because i find that the record itself is the important thing and there's not actually any one song or i think every person that listens to it will have their own song that Mm -hmm. they think was the title track yeah yeah so they can just imagine that so and i like that you can look at it more holistically yeah and apparently it's a thing that people when it's their first album they just call it by their name you know apparently that's that's a thing so So. i just went with that I did tell you before that there would be some surprise questions. How do you feel about that? Yeah, like a surprise. Do you really? Kind of. Yeah. So this is the wild card question round. (laughs) Where you have the opportunity to choose what I ask you next based on three topics that I present you. It's a surprise. Oh, I'm so surprised. Okay. So first of all, we have pre-gig rituals, non-musical pursuits, and we have strengths and weaknesses. I'm not choosing for you. Yeah, I was looking <laughs> you looking at you beseeching me, but it didn't work. No one wants to know what I do other than music, I'd imagine. No I, one's that I, interested in me. I'm so. interested in like the non-musical side of people. Are you? Because I think a lot of people, you know, they have this image of a musician. It's like, oh, music is my life. Music's and my I life. breathe music every single day. And yeah. I can breathe without bath. Music isn't what I do. It's what I am. Oh, and so I like hearing about how, you know, people just do silly things. Let's know, go whatever. for that one then, okay. non-musical Great. pursuits. All right. So what are you most likely to be doing when you're not playing or thinking about music? I have two things and they're kind of the opposite of each other, which I really like. I'm a big fan of hiking. I'm a massive hiker. Oh, yes. You were recently in Wales, weren't you? I was. I went to mm-hmm. Wales with my aunt. She's doing, a, there's this thing called the County Top Challenge, where you climb the highest point of every single county in the whole of the UK. Oh, my God. And she's doing it for uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, Duke, uh-huh, Duke of Edinburgh Award. DV. That's the one. It'd be so much easier. She's doing it for the DV. Yeah. Um, she actually coaches classes on doing the DV and like guides people through it. But she recently realized that she actually didn't have one. So she's going to do it now. Yeah. It's a bit late, but you know, she's climbed every mountain at least five times. So I think she's earned it. Yeah, I know. That was in my head. <laughs> we went to Wales and we did uh, the county tops of Pembrokeshire and Carmarthenshire because actually it turns out that our family come from that area those two counties Mm -hmm. so that was quite that was amazing we went to a shop that my great great grandfather Archibald Dawes used to work there used to be a confectioner oh but now it's like a weird it's like they call it a tobacconist but it's mostly like a it's mostly sells alcohol which I oh really it's quite tragic considering (laughs) yeah that Archibald Dawes actually ended up an alcoholic in the workhouse so I think it's kind of a a sad irony there but they now sell a lot of very weird liqueurs (laughs) and then maybe next time you go become like a vape shop or something yeah well you know that'll be that's That's every way yeah Yeah. everything's a vape shop nowadays have you ever been up Mount Snowdon I haven't that's um I've done that's one of the three peaks isn't it yeah yeah so I've done uh, Scarfell Pike which is the English one yeah and then there's Ben Nevis and there's Ben Nevis and Snowdon so I haven't actually done Ben Nevis or Snowdon we were gonna do Ben Nevis this summer but uh, Scotland have had some quite horrific weather so we decided to it wouldn't be safe for us to do it Mm -hmm. but those are basically the next ones that I want to try. Mark and I actually got engaged on Mount Snowden. Did you? Oh my God, that's the sweetest thing I ever yeah. heard. Well, yeah, it was a long hike. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Were you just like, do you want to get married? Yeah, yeah, come on. We've got to get down. Yeah. It's getting dark. It was in the middle of summer, but it was typical, you know, Welsh yeah. summer weather. So rain jacket and wellies. Yeah. We were very lucky this last week, actually. We had, we had, we had some really good weather. Uh-huh. Yeah, some actual sun. I actually got sunburned. What? 
Amazing, isn't it? That's incredible. So you mentioned two things. What's the other thing that you do? Sitting on the sofa. Great. I like, they're the exact opposite. So sometimes crying, sometimes not crying. Yeah, basically. But sometimes I'm not crying on the sofa and I'm crying up a mountain. So, you know, (laughs) crying is is probably the number three, actually. (laughs) The only other thing that I do most of the time. Are they sometimes tears of joy? Uh, Yeah, I do find myself tearing up a lot, Mm -hmm. especially in nature. I find a... I have a very like strong connection with nature. I think we all do, but mm-hmm. sometimes it's quite it gets uh, denatured somehow by our very kind of urban lives. Yeah. But I have a, a real passion for the outdoors and especially um, climbing or hiking, as I said. So mm-hmm. I, f- I do often find myself in tears at the top of a mountain. You you got to go to New Zealand sometime. I really want to. Yeah. I did. Um, we went to we've been to Australia on tour. We had Australia. we never we never made it to New Zealand. So I did ten days in Australia hiking yeah. on my own, and that was amazing. I did. Yeah. So I climbed into the the Grampians, which is one of their big mm-hmm. in South Australia, one of their big mountain ranges. So that was amazing. And I do I do aim to go to New Zealand at some point, especially because you, you have lovely horses there as well. So oh, that's you're a horse person. Yeah, I'm a big horse. Person. Yeah, I feel like if you go to New Zealand, you'll probably be in tears a lot. Yeah, a lot of tears of joy. That's good. Yeah. Nina Harris, it's been lovely chatting to oh, you. Thanks for so me. you mentioned before, people can find you on your website, yes. ninaharries.com. That's the one. Any social media handles we should know about? I think they're both the same for Facebook and Instagram. It's just Nina Harry's bass because I'm not very uh, imaginative. Do you play the bass? I do. That's basically <laughs> the only thing that I do, really, other than hiking <laughs> and crying. Yeah, we, we, we now know you do other things. <laughs> Those are the social media things. But yeah, the album launch, 13th of September at Hoxton Hall. Sorry for people that are listening to this in December. In but the future. You should have been there. Were you there? If you weren't there, fair yeah. enough. Can't be that horrible to you. But it's going to be a thing. So if you're listening now, buy your tickets now so I don't and cry anymore. About and it's going to be amazing. Sales. And you can watch Nina sing it will and be a play thing. and collaborate with her family. Yeah, you get to see it's a rare thing. The Harris family on stage all together. Well, you're witnessing history. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> That was Nina Harris. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. Sorry, Nina, I didn't get your pronunciation of ear straight away. Not your fault. Clearly, my ears were not working in some way that day. If you're listening to this episode promptly when it comes out, check out tickets to her album launch on September the 13th, a link to which I'll post in the show notes. And if you're listening to this in the future... Hi! How's the future? Are we living in some sort of post-Brexit apocalypse? Oh, God, I hope not. Am I still alive, even? My voice has been immortalized through these podcasts. <laughs> this week's Music College Didn't Prepare Me comes in the form of a conversation I had with my friend Lisa. I have to do it in her voice. <laughs> no prizes for guessing where she's from. I reckon Music College should have a series of continued professional development courses in lots of different subjects. But... One thing Music College doesn't teach you and should is how to pose for a fucking photo. (laughs) Sorry, Lisa. I then proceeded to laugh out very loud into my glass of weird and frankly quite gross English sparkling wine that we'd been given for free after a gig. It's so true, though. As a musician, you're expected to have professional photos or headshots on hand, so you can give them to concert promoters for programs and publicity ads, or maybe it's for social media or for a website. You finally get round to booking a photographer or reining in a friend with a nice camera to take photos of you. And then what? 
How do you pose? Do you look at the camera? Or do you look forlornly out into the distance, perhaps wondering what series of events in your life has led you to this certain predicament? Are you going to be sultry and serious? Or throw your head back in unbridled mirth? <laughs> Where's it going to be? How about that distressed brick facade in the alleyway behind your flat? Or somewhere totally practical, such as the banks of the River Thames? Are you going to look casual and cool, or opt for the full-on ball gown or tuxedo affair? And, most importantly, what the hell are you going to do with your hands? Perhaps drape them seductively over your instrument, or cradle your face delicately with them to indicate that, as a musician, your hands are pertinent to your music making. I mean, no one does that with ears. Your ears are just as important. It's so hard. I feel like some people are more natural at this kind of thing than others. I once attended a photo shoot where I'll never forget the photographer kept saying, micro-movements, micro-movements, it's all about the micro-movements. So we all looked like we were swaying semi-consciously on the spot. But I suppose that's a good strategy if you're going to take a thousand photos. I mean, 999 of them might be terrible, but then you might just get the one. Another time, a fixer didn't even ask me for a photo because they plucked a totally rando picture from my Facebook page to put on their website. And despite having loads of photos of me with, or in the vicinity of my cello, they chose a photo of me at a restaurant in Germany holding up an enormous pizza that I was about to eat. So who knows what people were looking for in a publicity photo? Clearly more pizza. I mean, you couldn't even see my hands. If you have an experience that Music College didn't prepare you for, then let me know at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com or send me a message on social media or tell me. That is your challenge. Find me. That's it for today. Special thanks to Ros Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Great big double bass size thanks to Nina Harries for coming all the way to my place to chat and catch up. And finally... Thank you for listening. Always lovely to hear from you, so drop me a line at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow the pod on Instabook and Facegram at asitcomespod. Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Chat to you soon. Bye. There's a dog barking in the background. Shut up, dog. Shut up, dog. Shut up, dog. Oh, we did. Okay.